Chapter 13 Heart Purity Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5, 8 This is another of the Beatitudes which has been grossly perverted by the enemies of the Lord, enemies who have, like their predecessors, the Pharisees, posed as the champions of the truth and boasted of a superior sanctity to that confessed by the true people of God. All through this Christian era, there have been poor, deluded souls who have claimed an entire purification of the old man or who have insisted that God has so completely renewed them that the carnal nature has been eradicated and in consequence that they not only commit no sins, but have no sinful desires or thoughts. But God tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 18. Of course, such people appeal to the scriptures in support of their vain delusion, applying to experience verses which describe the legal benefits of the atonement. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. does not mean that our hearts have been washed from the corrupting defilements of evil, but that the sacrifice of Christ has availed for the judicial blotting out of sins. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 refers not to our state in this world, but to the Christians standing before God. That purity of heart does not mean the sinlessness of life is clear from the inspired record of the history of all of God's saints. Noah got drunk. Abraham equivocated. Moses disobeyed God. Job cursed the day of his birth. Elijah fled in terror from Jezebel. Peter denied Christ. Yes, perhaps someone will exclaim, but all these were before Christianity was established. True, but it has also been the same since then. Where shall we go to find a Christian of superior attainment to those of the Apostle Paul? And what was his experience? Read Romans 7 and see. When he would do good, evil was present with him. Verse 21. There was a law in his members warring against the law of his mind and bringing him into captivity to the law of sin. Verse 23. He did, with the mind, serve the law of God. Nevertheless, with the flesh he served the law of sin. Verse 25. Ah, Christian reader, the truth is that one of the most conclusive evidences that we do possess a pure heart is the discovery and consciousness of the impurity of the old heart dwelling side by side within. But let us come closer to our text. Blessed are the pure in heart. In seeking an interpretation to any part of this Sermon on the Mount, the first thing to bear in mind is that those whom our Lord was addressing had been reared in Judaism. As said one who was deeply taught of the Spirit, 
I cannot help thinking that our Lord, in using the terms before us, had a tacit reference to that character of external sanctity or purity which belonged to the Jewish people and to that privilege of intercourse with God which was connected with that character. They were a people separated from the nations, polluted with idolatry, set apart as holy to Jehovah, and as a holy people, they were permitted to draw near to their God, the only living and true God, in the ordinances of his worship. On the possession of this character, and on the enjoyment of this privilege, the Jewish people plumed themselves. A higher character, however, and a higher privilege belonged to those who should be the subjects of the Messiah's reign. They should not only be externally holy, but pure in heart, and they should not merely be allowed to approach towards the holy place where God's honor dwelt, but they should see God, be introduced into the most intimate intercourse with Him, thus viewed as a description of the spiritual character and privileges of the subjects of the Messiah, in contrast with the external character and privileges of the Jewish people. The passage before us is full of the most important and interesting truth. Dr. John Brown Blessed are the pure in heart. Opinion is divided as to whether these words of Christ are to be understood literally or figuratively, whether the reference be to the new heart itself received at regeneration or to the moral transformation of character which results from a divine work of grace being wrought in the soul. Probably both aspects of the truth are combined here in view of the late place which this beatitude occupies in the series. It would appear that the purity of heart upon which our Savior pronounced his blessing is that internal cleansing which accompanies and follows the new birth. Yet, inasmuch as no heart purity exists in the natural man, what is here affirmed by Christ must be traced back to regeneration itself. The psalmist said, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Psalm 51, 6. How far this goes beneath the outward renovation and reformation which comprises such a large part of the efforts now being brought forth in Christendom. Much that we see around us is a hand religion seeking salvation by works or a head religion which rests satisfied with an orthodox creed, but God looking on the heart, an expression which appears to include the understanding, the affections, and the will. It is because God looketh within that he gives a new heart, Ezekiel 36.26, to his own people, and blessed indeed are they who have received such, for it is a pure heart. 
as intimated above, we believe this sixth beatitude contemplates both the new heart received at regeneration and the transformation of character which follows God's work of grace in the soul. First, there is a washing of regeneration, Titus 3, 5, by which we understand a cleansing of the affections, which are now set upon things above instead of things below. This is parallel with purifying their hearts by faith, Acts 15.9. Accompanying this is the cleansing of the conscience, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, Hebrews 10.22, which refers to the removal of the burden of conscious guilt, the inward realization that being justified by faith, we have peace with God. But the purity of heart commended here by Christ goes further than this. What is purity? Freedom from defilement, undivided affections, sincerity, and genuineness. As a quality of Christian character, we would define it as godly simplicity. It is the opposite of subtlety and duplicity. Genuine Christianity lays aside not only malice, but guile and hypocrisy. It is not enough to be pure in words and in outward deportment. Purity of desires, motives, intents are what should and do in the main characterize the child of God. Here then is the most important test for every professing Christian to apply to himself. Are my affections set upon things above? Are my motives pure? Why do I assemble with the Lord's people to be seen of men or to meet with the Lord and enjoy sweet communion with Him? For they shall see God. Once more, we would point out how that the promises attached to these beatitudes have both a present and a future fulfillment. The pure in heart possess spiritual discernment, and with the eyes of their understanding, they obtain clear views of the divine character and perceive the excellency of his attributes. When the eye is single, the whole body is full of light. In the truth, the faith of which purifies the heart, they see God. For what is that truth but a manifestation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? An illustrious display of the combined radiance of divine holiness and divine benignity. And he not only obtains clear and satisfactory views of the divine character, but he enjoys intimate and delightful communion with God. He is brought very near God. God's mind becomes his mind. God's will becomes his will. And his fellowship is truly with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. They who are pure in heart see God in this way even in the present world. And in the future state, their knowledge of God will become far more extensive and their fellowship with Him far more intimate. For though when compared with the privileges of a former dispensation, even now, as with open face, we behold the glory of the Lord, yet in reference to the privileges of a higher economy, we yet see, but through a glass 
darkly. We know, but in part. We understand, but in part. We enjoy, but in part. But that which is in the part shall be done away, and that which is perfect shall come. We shall yet see face to face, and know, even as we are known, 1 Corinthians 13, 9-12, or, to borrow the words of the psalmist, we shall behold his face in righteousness, and shall be satisfied when we awake in his likeness, Psalm 17, 15. Then, and not till then, will the full meaning of these words be understood, the pure in heart shall see God. Dr. John Brown Chapter 14 The Beatitudes and Christ Our meditations upon the Beatitudes would not be complete unless they turned our thoughts to the person of our blessed Lord. As we have endeavored to show, they describe the character and conduct of a Christian, and as Christian character is nothing more or less than being experimentally conformed to the image of God's Son, we must turn to Him for the perfect pattern. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we find the brightest manifestations of the highest exemplifications of the different spiritual graces which are found dimly reflected in his followers. Not one or two, but all these perfections were displayed by him. For me is not only lovely, but altogether lovely. May the Holy Spirit, who is here to glorify him, take now of the things of Christ and show them unto us. First, blessed are the poor in spirit. Most blessed is it to see how the scriptures speak of him who was rich, becoming poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might be rich. Great indeed was the poverty into which he entered, born of parents who were poor in this world's goods. He commenced his earthly life in a manger. During his youth and early manhood, he toiled at the carpenter's bench. After his public ministry had begun, he declared that though the foxes had their holes and the birds of the air their nests, the Son of Man had not where to lay his head. If we trace out the messianic utterances recorded in the Psalms by the spirit of prophecy, we shall find that again and again he confessed to God his poverty of spirit. I am poor and sorrowful, Psalm 69:29, and bow down thine ear, O Jehovah, for I am poor and needy, Psalm 86:1. And again, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. Psalm 109.22 Blessed are they that mourn. Christ was indeed the chief mourner. Old Testament prophecy contemplated him as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. See him grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Mark 3.5 Behold him Sighing, ere he healed the deaf and dumb man. Mark 7.34 Mark him, weeping by the graveside of Lazarus. Hear his lamentation over the beloved city. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
How often would I have gathered thy children together? Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Draw near and reverently behold him in the gloom of Gethsemane, pouring out his petitions to the Father with strong crying and tears. Hebrews five seven. Bow in worshipful wonderment as you hear him crying from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Hearken to his plaintive plea. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Lamentations 1.12 Third, blessed are the meek. A score of examples might be drawn from the Gospels illustrating the lovely lowliness of the incarnate Lord of Glory. Mark it in the men selected by him to be his ambassadors. He chose not the wise, the learned, the great, the noble, but poor fishermen for the most part. Witness it in the company which he kept. He sought not the rich and renowned, but was the friend of publicans and sinners. See it in the miracles which he wrought. Again and again he enjoined the healed to go and tell no man what had been done for them. Behold it in the unobtrusiveness of his service. Unlike the hypocrites who sounded a trumpet before them, he sought not the limelight, shunned advertising, and disdained popularity. When the crowds would make him their idol, he avoided them. Mark 1, 45, chapter 7, verse 17. When they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. John 6, 15. When his brethren urged, Show thyself to the world, he declined and went up to the feast in secret. John 7. When he, in fulfillment of prophecy, presented himself to Israel as their king, he entered Jerusalem lowly and riding upon an ass. Zechariah 9, 9. Fourth, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. What a summary is this of the inner life of the man, Christ Jesus. Before the incarnation, the Holy Spirit announced, Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. Isaiah 4, 5. When he entered this world, he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Hebrews 10:17. As a boy of twelve, he asked, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Luke 2:41. At the beginning of his public ministry, he declared, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Matthew 5:17. To his disciples he declared, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. John 4:34. Of him the Holy Spirit has said, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Psalm 45, 7. Well may he be called the Lord our righteousness. Fifth, blessed are the merciful. 
In Christ we see mercy personified. It was mercy to poor lost sinners which caused the Son of God to exchange the glory of heaven for the shame of earth. It was mercy, wondrous and matchless, which took him to the cross, there to be made a curse for his people. So it is, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Titus 3, 5. He still exercises mercy to us as our merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews 2, 17. So also we are to be looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, Jude 21, because he will show us mercy in that day, 2 Timothy 1.18. Sixth, blessed are the pure in heart. This too was perfectly exemplified in Christ. He was the Lamb without spot and without blemish. In becoming man, he was uncontaminated, contracting none of the defilements of sin. His humanity was holy, Luke 1, 35. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, Hebrews 7, 26. In him was no sin, 1 John 3, 5. Therefore, he did no sin, 1 Peter 2.22, and knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He is pure, 1 John 3.3. 3. Because he was absolutely pure in nature, his motives and actions were always pure. I seek not mine own glory. John 8.50 sums up the whole of his earthly career. Seventh, blessed are the peacemakers. Supremely true is this of our blessed Savior. He is the one who made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20 He was appointed to be a propitiation. Romans 3.25 That is, the one who should pacify God's wrath, satisfy every demand of his broken law, glorify his justice and holiness. So, too, has he made peace between the alienated Jew and Gentile. See Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. In a coming day, he will yet make peace on this sin-cursed and war-stricken earth, when he shall sit upon the throne of his father, David. Then shall be fulfilled that word, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Isaiah 9, 7. Well may he be called the Prince of Peace. Eighth, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. None was ever persecuted as was the righteous one. What a word is that in Revelation 12, 4. By the spirit of prophecy, he declared, I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. Psalm 88, 15. On his first public appearance, we are told, they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. Luke 4:29. In the temple precincts, 
They took up stones to cast at him. John 9.59 All through his ministry, his steps were dogged by enemies. The religious leaders charged him with having a demon. John 8.38 Those who sat in the gate spake against him, and he was the song of the drunkards. Psalm 69.12 At his trial, they plucked off his hair. Isaiah 56 sat in his face, buffeted him, and smote him with the palms of their hands. Matthew 26:67. After he was scourged by the soldiers and crowned with thorns, carrying his own cross, he was led to Calvary, where they crucified him. Even in his dying hours, he was not left in peace, but was persecuted by revilings and scoffings. How unutterably mild in comparison is the persecution we are called on to endure for his sake. In like manner, each of the promises attached to the Beatitudes find their accomplishment in Christ. Poor in spirit he was, but his supremely is the kingdom. Mourn he did, yet will he be comforted as he sees of the travail of his soul. Meekness personified, yet shall he sit on a throne of glory. He hungered and thirsted after righteousness, yet now is he filled with satisfaction as he beholds the righteousness he wrought imputed to his people. Pure in heart, he sees God as none other does. Matthew 11:27 As the peacemaker he is owned the son of God by all the blood-bought children as the persecuted one great is his reward having been given the name above all others may the spirit of God occupy us more and more with him who is fairer than the children of men chapter 15 Affliction and Glory For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 These words supply us with a reason why we should not faint under trials, nor be overwhelmed by misfortunes. They teach us to look at the trials of time in the light of eternity. They affirm that the present buffetings of the Christian exercise a beneficent effect on the inner man. If these truths were firmly grasped by faith, they would mitigate much of the bitterness of our sorrows. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This verse sets forth a striking and glorious antithesis as it contrasts our future state with our present. Here there is affliction, there glory. Here there is a light affliction, there a might of glory. In our affliction there is both levity and brevity. It is a light affliction, and it is but for a moment. In our future glory there is 
solidity and eternity to discover the preciousness of this contrast. Let us consider separately each member, but in the inverse order of mention. 1. A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It is a significant thing that the Hebrew word for glory, kabod, also means weight. When weight is added to the value of gold or precious stones, this increases their worth. Heaven's happiness cannot be told out in the words of earth. Figurative expressions are best calculated to convey some imperfect views to us. Here in our text, one term is piled up on top of another. That which awaits the believer is glory, and when we say that a thing is glorious, we have reached the limits of human language to express that which is excellent and perfect. But the glory awaiting us is weighted. Yea, it is far more exceeding weighty than anything terrestrial and temporal. Its value defies computation. Its transcendent excellency is beyond verbal description. Moreover, this wondrous glory awaiting us is not evanescent and temporal, but divine and eternal. For eternal it could not be unless it were divine. The great and blessed God is going to give us that which is worthy of himself, yea, that which is like himself, infinite and everlasting. 2. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment. A. Affliction is the common lot of human existence. Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job 5.7 This is part of the entail of sin. It is not meet that a fallen creature should be perfectly happy in his sins. Nor are the children of God exempted. Through much tribulation we must enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 by a hard and rugged road does God lead us to glory and immortality. B. Our affliction is light. Afflictions are not light in themselves, for oft times they are heavy and grievous. But they are light comparatively. They are light when compared with what we really deserve. They are light when compared with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. But perhaps their real lightness is best seen by comparing them with the weight of glory which is awaiting us. As said the same apostle in another place, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8, 18. C. Which is but for a moment. Should our afflictions continue throughout a whole lifetime, and that life be equal in duration to Methuselah's, yet is it momentary if compared with the eternity which is before us. At most, our affliction is but for this present life, which is as a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Oh, that God would enable us to examine our trials in their true perspective. 
3. Note now the connection between the two. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The present is influencing the future. It is not for us to reason and philosophize about this, but to take God at his word and believe it. Experience, feelings, observation of others may seem to deny this fact. Oft times afflictions appear only to sour us and make us more rebellious and discontented. But let it be remembered that afflictions are not sent by God for the purpose of purifying the flesh. They are designed for the benefit of the new man. Moreover, afflictions help to prepare us for the glory hereafter. Affliction draws away our heart from the love of the world. It makes us long more for the time when we shall be translated from this scene of sin and sorrow. It will enable us to appreciate, by way of contrast, the things which God had prepared for them that love Him. Here, then, is what faith is invited to do, to place in one scale the present affliction, in the other the eternal glory. Are they worthy to be compared? No, indeed. One second of glory will more than counterbalance a whole lifetime of suffering. What are years of toil, of sickness, of battling against poverty, of persecution, yea, of a martyr's death, when weighted over against the pleasures at God's right hand, which are forevermore? One breath of paradise will extinguish all the adverse winds of earth. One day in the Father's house will more than counterbalance the years we have spent in this dreary wilderness. May God grant unto us that faith which will enable us to anticipatively lay hold of the future and live in the present enjoyment of it. Chapter 16 Contentment I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Philippians 4:11 Discontent Was there ever a time when there was so much restlessness in the world as there is today? We very much doubt it. Despite our boasted progress, the vast increase of wealth, the time and money expended daily in pleasure, discontent is everywhere. No class is exempt. Everything is in a state of flux, and almost everybody is dissatisfied. Many, even among God's own people, are affected with the evil spirit of this age. Contentment. Is such a thing realizable, or is it nothing more than a beautiful ideal, a mere dream of the poet? Is it attainable on earth, or is it restricted to the inhabitants of heaven? If practicable here and now, may it be retained, or are a few brief moments or hours of contentment the most that we may expect in this life? Such questions as these find answer, an answer at least in the words of the Apostle Paul. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned 
in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Philippians 4.11 The force of the Apostle's statement will be better appreciated if his condition and circumstances at the time he made it be kept in mind. When the Apostle wrote, or most probably dictated, the words, he was not luxuriating in a special suite in the Emperor's palace, nor was he being entertained in some exceptional Christian household, the members of which were marked by unusual piety. Instead, he was in bonds. Compare Philippians 1, 13 and 14. A prisoner, Ephesians 4, 1, as he says in another epistle. And yet, notwithstanding, he declared he was content. Now, there is a vast difference between precept and practice, between the ideal and the realization. But in the case of the Apostle Paul, contentment was an actual experience and one that must have been continuous. For he says, in whatsoever state I am. How then did Paul enter into this experience and of what did the experience consist? The reply to the first question is to be found in the word, I have learned to be content. The apostle did not say, I have received the baptism of the Spirit, and therefore contentment is mine. Nor did he attribute this blessing to his perfect consecration. Equally plain is it that it was not the outcome of natural disposition or temperament. It is something he had learned in the school of Christian experience. It should be noted, too, that this statement is found in an epistle which the Apostle wrote near the close of his earthly career. From what has been pointed out, it should be apparent that the contentment which Paul enjoyed was not the result of congenial and comfortable surroundings, and this at once dissipates a vulgar conception. Most people suppose that contentment is impossible unless one can have gratified the desires of the carnal heart. A prison is the last place to which they would go if they were seeking a contented man. This much, then, is clear. Contentment comes from within, not without. It must be sought from God, not in creature comforts. But let us endeavor to go a little deeper. What is contentment? It is the being satisfied with the sovereign dispensations of God's providence. It is the opposite of murmuring, which is the spirit of rebellion, the clay saying to the potter, Why hast thou made me thus? Instead of complaining at his lot, a contented man is thankful that his condition and circumstances are no worse than they are. Instead of greedily desiring something more than the supply of his present need, he rejoices that God still cares for him. Such an one is content with such as he has. Hebrews 13:5. One of the fatal hindrances to contentment is covetousness, which is a canker eating into and destroying present satisfaction. 
It was not, therefore, without good reason that our Lord gave the solemn commandment to his followers, Take heed and beware of covetousness. Luke 12:15. Few things are more insidious. Often it poses under the fair name of thrift or the wise safeguarding of the future present economy so as to lay up for a rainy day. The scripture says covetousness, which is idolatry, Colossians 3, 5, the affection of the heart being set upon material things rather than upon God. The language of a covetous heart is that of the horse leech's daughter. Give, give. The covetous man is always desirous of more, whether he has little or much. How vastly different the words of the apostle. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. 1 Timothy 6, 8. A much needed word is that of Luke 3, 14. Be content with your wages. Godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6, 6. Negatively, it delivers from worry and fretfulness, from avarice and selfishness. Positively, it leaves us free to enjoy what God has given us. What a contrast is found in the world which follows, but they that will be, desire to be, rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10 May the Lord in His grace deliver us from the spirit of this world, and make us to be content with such things as we have. Contentment, then, is the product of a heart resting in God. It is the soul's enjoyment of that peace which passeth all understanding. It is the outcome of my will being brought into subjection to the divine will. It is the blessed assurance that God doeth all things well, and is even now making all things work together for my ultimate good. This experience has to be learned by proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 2. Contentment is possible only as we cultivate and maintain that attitude of accepting everything which enters into our lives as coming from the hand of Him who is too wise to err and too loving to cause one of His little children a needless tear. Let our final word be this. Real contentment is only possible by being much in the presence of the Lord Jesus. This comes out clearly in the verses which follow our opening text. I know both how to be abased 
and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Philippians 4, 12 and 13. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.